Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Peter Dito. He is Professor of Psychological Science at UC Irvine School of Social Ecology. He is interested in hot cognition, the interface between passion and reason. He, he examines the role of motivation, emotion and intuition in social, political, moral, medical and legal judgment. He studies things like motivated reasoning, which you're going to talk about today. And another key focus of his current research is partisan political bias. So, Dr. Dito, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. So, let's start with motivated reasoning. Uh, first of all, what is it? Well, um, yeah, my, my research group at UC Irvine, like you said, is called the Hot Cognition Lab. And so all of our research is guided by that sort of notion that people think emotionally. It's not that people don't reason, they do, uh, but their reasoning is shaped and organized by how they feel, by their wants and needs and hopes and fears. And so I mean, the first thing I think to recognize is all reasoning is motivated, right? But when we think about reasoning, we think, well, we're motivated to get the right answer. So if I have a choice, between answer A and answer B, I'm trying to choose between those, and the only thing I care about is how accurate, you know, which is the one that conforms the most with the facts. But that's not the way most reasoning happens, right? That's not, we care about, we're not detached observers, we're not dispassionate, we're, we're involved, we care whether we're healthy or sick, whether we're smart or dumb, whether we're liked or hated by people. Uh, whether our political you know, beliefs are correct or not. So when we, we have a choice between the answer A and B, very often we have a preference for one, right? We'd rather yeah. the answer be that we're smart or that we're liked or that we're, you know, we're, our beliefs are correct than, than, than the alternative. And so that's this idea that sort of we're motivated to believe certain things, like particular answers. You know, in common parlance, things like denial, uh, wishful thinking that we know about, you know, that we just kind of having rose-covered colored glasses on that, you know, there's times when people, it's not just about accuracy, people really care how judgments turn out. And that's the kind of thing I've been interested in, how it is that, that sort of passionate side of people gets involved in, in, in their reasoning. Mm -hmm. And are there different kinds of motivated reasoning or does it apply to different domains? So I would imagine things like politics, morality, and so on, right? <clears throat> Right. I mean, I think it applies to virtually every domain. So there's, there's, there's certainly varieties of motivated reasoning. First, the reason can be motivated by different things. So again, people can be motivated more for a correct answer you know, than, than, and less for a correct answer. So sometimes things, the stakes really matter. So if I'm choosing, you know, what job to take or what person to marry, it really matters. Uh, you know, or what path to take that by one might be dangerous. Right. There's other times we're choosing between toilet paper or, uh, you know, fabric softer, it doesn't matter, you know, so, so there's accuracy motivation. So sometimes people really care about accuracy. Sometimes they care less about it. Again, sometimes they care. What I'm more interested in is what they call sort of directional reasoning. When you have a, an answer that you'd like to come to, right? So you prefer that answer and that could be motivated by your desire to see yourself positively. It could be motivated by your desire to see your group positively or stay connected with your a group of people who you want them to like you. And so you want to believe certain things that make that easier. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, motivations that can create that essentially that preference, that desire for one answer to be correct 
rather than another answer. And that, again, and that happens in every part of life, right? Anytime when things are hot. Uh, and that's, and I, as I always argue, that that's the interesting part of human judgment, right? When people really care about stuff, uh, you know, when they're deciding on, on their health, when they're making decisions about, you know, uh, you know, that really matter about their lives. Uh, you know, there's lots of times when, again, that you're confronted with information you don't want to believe, finding out that you're sick, finding out that you're wrong or disliked, uh, you know, and you have to deal with that um, sort of thing. So it applies everywhere. I mean, it's one of really the most ubiquitous findings, I think, in, in psychology is that people's, you know, particularly uh, when it's infused with group motivation, right? That, that's this idea of sort of my side bias, that we just like things better when they come from our group, or more charitable when they come from our group. So when groups get involved, motivation you know, uh, you know, really gets heightened. And so it sort of it applies in all kinds of situations. Again, I've been interested in it in a couple of different ones, uh, you know, sort of illness at first, and then later on sort of this you know, politics is a great example where people just are invested. They want to believe something is true. And so, you know, it applies across the sort of the human sphere. Yeah. So at a certain point there, you mentioned health and medical decisions. So, uh, and perhaps this is relevant uh, now because of COVID. So could you tell us about medical information denial and does it have anything to do with motivated reasoning? I mean, that was really the first problem that I got interested in was medical denial. Um, you know, I, it, it was really at the beginning of uh, the creation of health psychology. It really wasn't a field yet. And my advisor in graduate school was interested in this and sort of set me out to say, well, gee, how do people make judgments about illness? What are the things that happen? And I was just interested in this, this, this phenomenon of when you find get a test result that tells you something you don't want to believe and do you believe it and uh so we you know i created this whole, a whole sort of i created a whole um paradigm to sort of create this this situation where we could confront people with sort of a mild uh negative uh health result and then sort of compare that to people who you know some people felt, felt that they had it some people thought that they didn't have it. And you just ask them, how serious is that condition? How accurate is that test? And people who think that they have it think the test is less accurate, think the condition is less serious. They don't just deny it. They sort of process it more deeply. They're more skeptical uh, of, of information. And that, I think, the, my, my experience with health-related judgments and uh, you know, I think really shaped the way I think about motivated reasoning generally, which is it's not that people don't, people don't just deny reality, right? They, there's, there's evolutionary pressure for us to sort of accept what's real, uh, you know, and be, you know, some, at least reasonably in touch with the stimulus out there in the world. And that's what I thought of, of, of uh, illness. And if you look in the illness literature, right, people don't just deny uh, it's very rare for somebody to get told, you have cancer, and they say, no, I don't, and they walk away. They say, wait, what, that can't be bad. Now, let me think about it. I need another opinion. I need, so it, it, you, you, and, and then if you get another opinion, right, eventually, and it, it might take you only one doctor to convince you're healthy. It takes you two or three maybe to convince you you're sick, but you're going to get there, right? People are going to be responsive to, to uh, information ultimately, right? And so it's a softer kind of denial that people, when they get things that they don't want to believe, they go, wow, let me think about that. 
I, I, I need to sort of process that. Let me, oh, that could be, and they, they're likely to generate alternative explanations. And that's very different from when you get information you want to believe, which you just sort of accept as true, right? And of course, an illness, that delay can sometimes be important, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't treat things right, so it can still be, uh, um, you know, detrimental to people, but it's also another way to think about it sometimes, again, in, in the illness literature is that that denial gives you a little bit of time to get yourself together. It's like, wait a minute, I don't believe that. Let me think about it. And then it may, it, you know, ultimately it may sort of help, uh, you know, facilitate behavior a little bit. You know, it, it, it's a natural process, uh, you know, and so, and then the, I think the jump was, I was always interested in sort of how people responded, threatening information from health to sort of socially threatening information. And then again, it wasn't much of a leap to, the sorts of things that I'm interested in now in politics, uh, where again, just as hot, but in a, in a very different way. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there are commonalities in how people reason across all of those different domains, correct? Yes, and I think that you know the phenomenon that I've been interested in, and I, and I sort of named in, in, in the 90s, is this idea of motivated skepticism. It seems to capture almost all of these things. So this is this idea that you know, skepticism is a good thing, right? We want to be skeptical of information. The problem is we deploy it selectively, yeah. right? So we tend to be more skeptical of things we don't want to believe than of things that we do want to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, so information that, that sort of threatens us, whether it's threatening our health, threatening our you know, political beliefs and allegiances, you know, threatening our moral sense, whatever it is, we tend to think a lot about it, process it, uh, uh, deeply and then consequently are more likely to generate sort of alternative ways of thinking about it that make it seem bad or make it seem less bad. Information we want to believe, we tend to just sort of take in. Again, whether that's, oh, you know, the doctor says you're, you know, you're healthy, fine, you know, go on. Nobody wants a second opinion for a healthy diagnosis. Uh, you know, and the same thing happens in, you know, when you're watching your favorite politician, you know, right? You're just kind of going, yep, I believe it, great. You know, you're not really critically evaluating it. When you're watching the, the, uh, the opposite politician say, wait a minute, prove that point. I need to know that. That seems wrong. I can think of alternative explanations. You know, and so that sort of commonality, that, that affect really is what it is. It's that when people get exposed to sort of challenge, information that challenges their, their beliefs and their allegiances and their, their, their desires, makes you feel bad, that, that negative affect drives thought and 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 you know more palatable information just doesn't do that and that seems to be a commonality in sort of the way we think about hot you know topics uh across domains yeah since we've already touched on health psychology i know that you're also interested in end-of-life medical decision making so what are the aspects of how people make decisions when it comes to ending their lives you're most interested in? Yeah, you know, that was a sort of a offshoot in my research career for a little while that I got interested in this really practical problem about living wills, right? And how it is that uh, people uh, can be asked to make judgments about a future self. So if you, mm -hmm. you, know, you you're a young, healthy guy, you know, you're asked, well, gee, would you want medical treatment if you were in a coma with no, you know, a slight chance of recovery or, you know, if you couldn't, you know, didn't have your brain function or things like that. And that's a very difficult task. I, so when I came into that, you know, I think the, the, the idea in medicine was, well, you know, all you have to do is, so here's these, 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 you know, very famous cases 
uh, Nancy Cruzan, Karen Ann Quinlan, and uh, you know people, uh, Terry Schiavo in the United States were, were people were in persistent vegetative states and needed to be. Uh, so you're in this terrible situation where you don't know what they want. And the idea is, oh, if they just would have filled out a living will, everything would be great. Right. And I said, no, it's much more complicated than that. People have trouble projecting themselves into the future and imagining what they would want. And you and and I'm going to have a lot of trouble predicting what you want as a person. Right. So if you're my spouse, you know, I don't know. You know as I say, I can't figure out what my spouse wants for her birthday. Uh, you know what she wants you know, in terms of medical treatment, maybe really beyond what I sort of understand. And with, so we did a bunch of research and sort of. Uh, you know, kind of tried to do a psychological analysis of this idea of living wills and end of life decision making and that people very often uh, cannot predict their their uh, loved ones end of life wishes better than chance. Right. So they're even after they get a living will and read that living will, they and then you're given a chance to sort of you know, play this game where each of you has to say what they, what they want. You still can't do it. Right. Uh, so it's really difficult. Uh, to, to understand other people's wishes. It's also difficult to understand your own and people will change, you know, people's wishes or we, we would follow them over years and ask them about their end of life wishes and those would change substantially over time and would sort of fluctuate with their health state. So when they were feeling kind of bad and, you know, so we did a, a study where we tracked people right after they went in the hospital and they tended to want less medical, you know, end of life medical treatment after they were in the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. uh, before, you think, well, maybe they learned something about it, but then if you wait a few months, they pop back to where they were. So they want medical treatment again. It's kind of when you're feeling bad, you don't want it. When you're feeling good and vigorous, you kind of say, yeah, I'd like to fight. And so those kinds of things, you know, sort of challenge the, the wisdom of having people try to predict their wishes, you know, far in advance. Um, so that was the kind of thing. It actually wasn't, you know, it was, it was in some ways I didn't study motivation or morality in that when I was doing that work. I was really kind of treating it like a cognitive task. And, uh, you know, and I think there's a lot of really still interesting things to do in that domain. Yeah. And talking about morality, uh, how should we understand morality from a psychological perspective? I mean, how does moral reasoning work? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. Um, and again, I think the everything sort of changed in in around 2008, uh, 2001, in the way psychologists really think about this, right? So before that, the sort of dominant figure in moral reasoning was Lawrence Kohlberg, who kind of viewed again moral reasoning as a cognitive task. It was like a series of building more and more sophisticated principles. He was very in, you know, influenced by Jean Piaget and and you know, that kind of saw the conceptual development. And so he saw babies as like little moral philosophers who were trying to you know, get a more, more and more sophisticated idea about morality. And, and when you made a moral judgment, you sort of compared it to your principles mm -hmm. and it was a cognitive task. And again, that was very consistent with the way psychology sort of thought about things in you know in the late 20th century, but in the sort of you know uh, uh, you know around the, the sort of uh, turn of the, the century, right? There there was this sort of affective revolution that people and so people like me were interested in things like motivated reasoning. Now, yeah, reasoning doesn't even work like that, right? It's driven by what how you feel things. And then the, the really central I think change was John Heights uh, wrote this uh, you know, very influential paper and laid out this theory of morality being about intuition. That it's not that we 
our way to morality. We feel our way there. That we it's something we feel when we see somebody do something you uh, you know that you find you know morally offensive. You just kind of go ah. Oh. Or if they ask you a question, is that morally right? You go ugh. You know no, it's not. Or wow, yeah, that really you feel that glow. And then people that you know again morality is a set of intuitions that people have. And then the thinking kind of comes afterwards. Mm-hmm. So. You sort of have this feeling that 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 some behavior, like I don't know, the death penalty is morally wrong, but you don't really think out why until somebody challenges you and says, "No, I think it's right," or uh, you know, uh, you're asked to explain yourself, and then people will come up with reasons for why they have their moral these moral feelings. But the idea is that it's not the it's not the reasons that get you to the feeling; it's the feeling that gets you to the the reasons, uh, the reasons, and that's and it really sort of again sort of part and parcel to sort of an evolutionary uh, way of thinking about morality. How did morale, how would a system evolve in which people cared about others' welfare more than their own? Would sacrifice, would, you know, sacrifice their own welfare for others? Well, you know, in small groups, that's what you have to do. You have to have some intuitions that are built up that work against selfishness and uh, you know, uh, against cooperation, because groups just wouldn't, if everybody's just doing their own thing, groups don't work, they don't provide the advantage. And again, that's our, the evolutionary niche of, of humans is that, that small group living. And so we develop these intuitions, you know, these feelings like, oh, that's wrong when people do things. And that's really the, the, that sort of central idea. And it was so similar to when I was interested in motivated reasoning and I started this whole sort of view of morality emerge. I said, yeah, that's what it is. I mentioned it's hot. You know, morality is what people care about. What they, you know, they, uh, you know, they, they celebrate and and uh, attack and uh, you know. So that that it was a it was a, a obvious sort of thing for me to be interested in. Mm-hmm. So could we say that then people start from their moral intuitions and then selectively seek out information and perhaps come up with arguments, for example, in moral philosophy or ethics to support those same intuitions. Uh, that's right. I mean, so that's exactly the sort of story, right? It's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of reverse engineering beliefs or, you know, in a non, it's not, it's not thoughtful. It's not conscious. Right. But it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's kind of this, another word is it back word reasoning, right. It kind of flows the other way. Um, Right. So people have these feelings. They have a conclusion that they kind of think is right. And that's what intuition is. These, these sort of, you know, it's, it's when an answer just sort of appears to you and seems, oh, that's clear. That's clear that that was a bad thing to do. Right. And then people have those. And then the reasoning sort of works backwards, not even so much to justify it as to explain it to yourself. You're trying your best to kind of come up. Why do I feel this way? But I feel this way. Right, and it's the feeling that's that's so powerful. And that, it, you know, a, another term I use when I talk about motivated reasoning is that it, you know, affect and intuition organize cognition, right? And that it's it's that you have these feelings, and it's not that they carry the day, but they organize the way you think, and so you're more likely to, you know, t- they tip the scale toward the thing that you sort of feel, you know, either intuitively being right or that you want to believe. And, you know, so that's the way, you know, morality works. And yeah, I think that 
in a lot of ways, moral philosophers are kind of chasing their own intuitive tail, right? So that's what, so you know, moral philosophers even are trying to come up, well, I, I think that this, this feels like it should be right. That should be the way the morality works. And then they come up, you know, clever people that they are, you know, academics, they come up with ways to explain it. And it's very much the way people do things. And that's, you, you can sort of see the, the, the trails. That's what all scientists, you know, I think we forget that scientists and scholars are people too, uh, you know, succumb to all the same sorts of, uh, you, know, you know, biases and, 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 and limitations. Yeah, I mean, I asked you that because I was just thinking that moral philosophers have this sort of idealized vision of how people think about moral questions and ethics. And I mean, in their idea, people really need to learn their philosophy to be able to, uh, I don't know, behave better or be behave properly or something like that. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, at the end of the day, it seems that even regardless of learning philosophy or not, people have their moral intuitions and that's, that would still guide their behavior, right? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's hard to overcome. People think of reasoning like it's this cold, calculating thing. It's, it's not. If you, you know, again, when you think about something and you come up with an answer, you go, "Wow, that feels that feels great." And that's how you know something is right. It's how you feel. You know when to stop, when it feel when it kind of feels good. And I, I people, you know, in psychology, they took, sort of talk about this functionalist view of, of people that thinking is for doing is the term that's often used that thinking is sort of designed to help people do things. I think what, what I argue is sometimes is, is that thinking is doing. I don't think people realize that thinking is, is doing and it works the same way. If you, you know, kind of want something, you keep going, you look under, you know, if you want, you're hungry and you want food, you look under rocks until you look under one, you find it and then you sit down and you eat, right? That's kind of the way thinking works, right? You kind of want an answer. You want to figure out why, you know, what your moral beliefs are, what your beliefs are about COVID or, uh, you know, if they're right. And so you kind of look and then the ones that make you feel good. Oh yeah. It's all, it's all fake. It's all, you know, it's all just made up. It's like, okay, good. You know, I'll just stay there and stop and, 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 and stop thinking about it. And so that's kind of the way, you know, it, thinking is this, is this really a, a emotional, Thing. And even you know, philosophers who want to try to squeeze that out, I think, right? And we can a little bit, you know, everybody still succumbs to that because it's so central to, to the way we, we think is it, that affect is involved in that. Mm -hmm. And how do you look at the relationship between morality and politics? Because since you mentioned Jonathan Hyde, I mean, his work is probably as much about morality as it is about politics. And when he talks about moral foundations, I mean, and about people with different political orientations, people with different political orientations care about different moral foundations. I mean, it's not that there are some of them they do not care about at all, but they put different weights into different moral foundations. So uh, how do you look at the relationship there between morality and politics? Yeah, I mean, again, I think, you know, so John and I collaborated for about 10 years on things, just still talk a lot. And, and I think that, you know, the view is very similar, which is you know, the, what's interesting is that, you know, you know, politics is a moral it's kind of applied morality in a sense, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's politics should be about morality. It's about coming up with a moral vision of what's good for your citizens and then trying to enact that through public policy. 
Uh, and but and sort of the what you what's happened in, in sort of a complicated tale, right? Is that politics in the United States, in particular, has become hyper moralized, where you know that that it's all about not just sort of moral reasoning in this sort of more thoughtful sense, but a moral sense of oh, your the other side is bad. You it's not so you could have again sort of this loyal opposition idea of politics. So, you know, you have a, you're in a different party, you have a different idea about how to get to a certain uh, place. We both want to get to the same place and your ideas at worst are wrong, maybe stupid, right? But that's one version and that's not the version of politics that's operating in the United States right now, right? It's more your, the other side has a different goal in mind. They want to, you know, do something different and they're bad, they have evil goals. I mean, I, the, in a recent paper, that I was part of with this big group of uh, political scientists and psychologists, people interested in polarization. We, we, we called it the political sectarianism. You know, sort of, there's sort of a pseudo-religious quality, which captures that moral part, right? It said, it's, it's like in the United States, you know, Democrats and Republicans are more like Sunnis and Shias than they are political parties, right? I mean, they really, they think, each think that they have the, this moral vision for the world Right, uh, and that they they are in touch with what those founders really wanted, and the other side are a bunch of heretics, and so you get this hyper moralized environment, uh, you know, and so that that's all happening, right? But underlying that, I think to kind of get back to your question is, yeah, the two sides, and I think this was John's great insight, right? It was that the two sides are are just have different moral sensibilities, mm -hmm. right? So it was, it was he was kind of speaking originally to, to liberals to say, you know, you, you the liberals have this sense that they're the moral ones and the other side is just amoral. They're just operating. It's like, no, they just have a different, you know, conservatives and liberals have different moral sensibilities. And if you learn that, you'd be a better communicator when you, you stop, you know, that liberals would act in ways that were seen as sort of sacrilegious uh, to, to conservatives. And, and, you know, very often the other way around, there's no question, right? So um, it, it, it's this idea that, that and that's what moral foundations theory was. It was a originally a very general theory. I mean, it is a, a general theory about what are the what are those intuitions that underlie morality? We, you know, we say morality is in, in, based on intuition. What are they? You know, what are the and can you see commonalities across social groups? And then again, in the original formulation, they came up with five. Uh, John and Craig Josephs and, and his graduate student Jesse Graham sort of identified these five moral foundations, uh, you know, moral intuitions that underlie all cultures. And again, we can talk about those in a minute, but the key idea is that, you know, culture and individual differences and everything, everybody has all five, but they get dialed up and dialed down in different groups yeah. and different cultures, right? So that different people end up with kind of emphasizing different uh, moralities. And that's where you are with kind of the liberals and conservatives. Mm -hmm. uh, have you also studied non-political ideologies and how they might affect reasoning? Because we've been focusing here on politics, but I mean, there are also non-political ideologies like, I don't know, religious ideologies. Have you also focused on those or not? You know, we, we don't, I don't study you know, the... Uh, so I, I, it's partly because ideology is a word that, you know, particularly in politics, that I'm just not sure. Uh, 
you know, how to think about anymore, right? I mean, if you, an ideology is sort of a coherent set of first principles that you operate from. And again, the whole idea of motivated reasoning is that you just don't really have first principles. You know, that those, you construct those after the fact. You have first feelings, maybe, uh, you know, but I, you know, again, there's a, you know, really interesting. So we sort of treat morality as, uh, you know, very, first of all, very descriptively, right? So it's not about what, you know, moral philosophers want to know what, you know, normatively, what's the, what's the right morality. Right. You know, we don't study people's, how people make moral judgments and try to describe those. And, you know, so r- religious people can be broken down the same way. And there's obviously a, a, a big overlap between sort of religion and politics, again, particularly in the United States, where the conservative, you know, party, the Republicans are really, you know, much more, uh, you know, much more overlap with religion than the others. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I think ideology is very often something we sort of construct after the fact. And, uh, you know, that's been a problem, I think, for political science as well. Yeah. So talking now about political bias, are conservatives and liberals equally biased? So that's, again, I have to start that question the same way I started the last one, right? So that's, I think, first of all, there's, right, there, people have sort of over-reified what a liberal and a conservative is. So it's not like if you have somebody who's a conservative that they are going to, their beliefs are going to conform to what a textbook would tell you is what a conservative ideology is. Conservative and liberal are just, and the same thing with liberals, right? Conservative and liberals, they're, they're, they're labels that people claim, right? So they, ch- and they change over time. People will change who, who says they're a Republican, who says they're a conservative changes over time. So it's not like there's, 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 there's not that much there, there, right? They're less than, you know, I think people want to treat liberals and conservatives like extroverts and introverts, but they aren't quite the same thing. Everything changes. That having been said, I think there's good, you know, there's good evidence that both sides are sort of equally prone to bias at a, at a psychological level. So I did a big study a few years ago, a, a meta-analysis, um, which I don't know if your viewers know, know what a meta-analysis is just an empirical right, combination of studies where you take lots of studies that have been done and you combine the results empirically to kind of generate an empirical answer rather than a sort of systematic review where you just look at it and say, yeah, I think there's more of this than this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tried to take every study in which there was that studied partisan bias, whether liberals or conservatives were more biased. And we sort of defined that as being more positive or charitable toward your own group than the other group. Right. And that's this that's this ubiquitous bias is my side bias that everybody seems to be sort of nicer. Things are different if they're when their behaviors enacted by your group than another group. And so what we did is we took every study we could find that was like a that, that showed people essentially identical information and then changed whether it was had a liberal or a conservative slant to it. So you take exactly the same scientific study mm-hmm. right? that like the famous one is one on uh, the death penalty and whether that deters future crime, right? And then you just change, you take exactly the same methodology and you change the results. Did some people see the results saying, oh yeah, the death penalty really does deter crime. Other people say, oh yeah, the death penalty doesn't deter crime. And then you, you have people who have different attitudes going in about the death penalty. And then you can see, oh, okay, uh, you know, how good a study is that? 
And, the, and what you find in those studies is that people think that the study is a good study if it supports their results, if it supports their prior beliefs, and it's a bad study if it doesn't, right? And again, the point is it's the same study. It's exactly the same study with the same methodology, but it's a good study if it supports you. It's a bad study if it doesn't. Same thing, you can watch, have people watch a videotape, you know, of a silent videotape of a protest. And some people are told it's a you know, a conservative protest. Some people told it's a liberal protest. How violent are the people? People see the people as more violent when they're on the other side. So you take every study like that that you can find, right? We did, and we could find, and then we compared the results to see whether people, how different people treated it, depending on whether that was involved, uh, you know, they were an in-party person or an out-of-party person or you know, supported their political beliefs or didn't. And what we found is that everybody was biased. Everybody showed this really robust bias across all these studies that people always are sort of more charitable toward their own side. They're more likely to see information that supports their beliefs is more accurate uh, uh, than information that challenges their beliefs. And both sides did it to virtually the identical degree, right? So everybody showed that bias. And that's I think that there's a couple of things that to point out about that, right? Is that first, it's this is these are highly controlled experiments that we looked at, where you present people with the identical information and under these control conditions, and then you ask them judgments, and under those conditions you get that similarity, right? And so what mm -hmm. I I interpret that is that people are sort of psychologically everybody's prone to this particular bias and sort of equally prone. It's probably, again, it's grounded in our group history. It's just, this is what we show at, at, right? And so at that level, everybody is. Does that mean that in the real world, everybody's equally accurate about the world or that bias manifests itself, you know, always equally? And I think, no, there are all kinds of historical pressures turning these things up and down. I think it's very hard to not, as a scientist, to not look at the political situation today and say that the, the conservative party in the United States has beliefs that are farther away from what the scientific consensus of reality is. Uh, they tend to be, they seem to be more worked up, seem less responsive to reality, you know, not taking vaccines, not believing, you know, uh, the information about how serious the, the, the you know, uh, pandemic is, but that, could be a, a you know historical trend, right? So right now, I think yeah, it looks like conservatives are sort of the, the, all the group pressures, and there's all kinds of explanations you can come up with that are. But I think psychologically, we're equally prone to these biases. And if people don't think that on the left we could fall prey to somebody who did had some of these same tendencies, right? To kind of tell us everything we want to believe is true, you know, and, and that's really I think the way to understand you know former President Trump, is he sort of weaponized motivated reasoning. He, he went in and said, no, no, this, this basic tendency we have to like our own group and dislike our, the other group, right? That's, that's absolutely, that's the way human groups have been interacting forever, right? It's really easy to create conflict between groups. You just gotta dial it up and tell them they're bad, they're bad, everything they say is wrong, everything we say is correct. When you do that, it's much harder to, to work do the uphill evolutionary battle of getting of, of modern liberal democracy, right? Trying to get people who don't look like you, who don't believe the same things you do, treat them civilly and fairly and not dislike them for what they are, right? That's hard, right? That was the, the, originally the American experiment was sort of about, right? And we've been trying to do that, but we're, it's like pushing a rock 
evolutionarily uphill when making groups dislike each other is just a downhill putt, right? And but it's dangerous because it's downhill and it could get away from you. And if you when you stoke those those fires, right? That could, and that's where we're at, right? Where you know it's it just these groups where that, that really dislike each other in that kind of moralized way. Mm-hmm. But when it comes specifically to science denial, I mean, I guess th- this is important because uh, it, uh, liberals and leftists in general very easily associate themselves with the side of science and say that all science denial comes from the right or from conservatives. I mean, we've had things like climate change and creationism and stuff like that. But more recently on the left, I mean, we have science denial when it comes to sex differences, IQ differences and stuff like that. So, I mean, can we really say or accept uh, things just straightforward when, when leftists or liberals say that they are on the side of science and all science denial comes from the right? Yeah, I mean, Science is hard, right? It tells you things you want to know, want to believe. Yeah. It tells you things you don't want to believe. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's really, there's good evidence, you know, s- experimental psychological evidence that both sides do this, right? So nobody, everybody wants to deny the validity of science that challenges what they want to believe, these firmly held beliefs that they have. Liberals do that, conservatives do that. There's good evidence, I think, for that over historically. It's something like genetic when I was in graduate school, right, you could not say that anything had a genetic basis. That was just racist, right? And people were a blank slate. Everything was learned. You know, it was very dumb. And, and, and again, the, the field has slowly changed and accepted that and come in to say that, yeah, there are genetic influences on, on things. But it was a tough battle because it didn't fit with the ideology. You know, and there's other examples, some of the ones you're, you're talking about. Um, you know, so I think, again, as a natural tendency, and we talk about this in a paper, it's kind of like a, a tribal, this tribal bias, that it's, this is human nature for us to kind of reject things that don't fit with our, our beliefs. And particularly, again, when we're, when it gets group, motivated reasoning is a team sport, right? It's, it's, it helps to have a group, it energizes things when you're defending a group. Other people give you ideas of how to defend things. Right. Oh, you know, you, that's the, here's what's wrong with that. Oh, I never thought about that. Right. And so it, it, it really works in that way. And that's just so fundamental to, to human nature that I just don't think I think it's wrong and dangerous in a sense for liberals to think that they're immune, which I think liberals often see themselves as the yeah, like logical control group to conservatives rather than the sort of mirror image of them in some ways. And I do think, right, the, there are real reasons to be concerned about right wing science denial and their, uh, you know, more really the political movements that are trying to leverage that in, in ways and deny, you know, sort of the obvious truths about things like elections and things like that. That's really a problem. But I mean, I think that the problem lies on the other side as well as everybody sees, you know, so, and it's really difficult when it becomes a moral battle to it's, it's like, well, if you're, that's, I always see, see Fox news in the United States again that way, right? It was like, the idea is that it's, they're supposed to be giving the opposite so they thought, oh, liberal media is biased, so we're going to give you conservative media that's not biased. No, what they did is they gave you conservative media that 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 was tit for tat with the liberal media. It's like, oh, you're going to bias it this way, we're going to bias it that way, because you guys are wrong. And so we had, we're justified in doing that. Once everything gets moralized, 
right? It's even hard to accept somebody else's beliefs because it just makes you angry. I don't want those people to be right. I don't want that. And I'll fight about it because it's a group thing and I sort of lose track of what the truth is because I'm so busy fighting the battle against the bad people. Mm -hmm. When it comes to political bias, do you also study other political orientations like libertarians and others? Yeah, we did a big study years ago. So we, when I was uh, working with uh, John Hyde, one of the things that we created was this yourmorals.org website uh, where, you know, this is kind of the beginning of that sort of thing. We said, well, well you know, we could call these people, we'll fill out questionnaires for us if we you know, put them up on the web. And then we, so we, we, we created this website, we put it on the web, we, you know, they fill out questionnaires and they would get, you get, you'd still there, right? It's in a new updated form. Um, and, uh, you know, you can fill out questionnaires that it tells you, oh, you know, here's what your results were. This is what the scale was about. You know, this is how you compare to other people. Right. So we generated uh, a, a lot of that uh, information. And so we got very quickly got thousands and thousands and thousands of people to fill out these things. And one of the things we found was we had this huge sample of 10 or 12,000 self-declared libertarians because we used a political scale that said, you know, from liberal to conservative, Green Party, liberty kind of gave them some other options. And so we said, well, gee, let's look at the psychology of these people. And libertarians are really, really interesting because if, if Again, so the idea of moral foundations theory is that liberal, there's these five foundations, harm, fairness, uh, in-group authority and purity that are sort of the basis. And the idea is that liberals really only care about harm and fairness. Those are the things that doesn't harm you. If it isn't fair, it's not really wrong. Uh, Right. They don't care as much about group loyalty. They don't care as much about what tradition and what authority tells you is right or about purity of what's sort of pure and, 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 uh, you know, has sanctity in that sense, right? Uh, And so liberals have these two hot button sort of moral issues. Conservatives really care about all five Mm -hmm. of them, right? So they kind of care equally, and that's sort of the the dominant position. Libertarians care very little about any of them, right? So they're not very moral. The one one moral sort of uh, sense that they have is about liberty, that you should be free to do with the things that you want. And you would find that. So on, on harm and fairness, liberals look more like conservatives than, than, than liberals. On the other, on the more conservative foundations, they look more like, uh, well, the other, yeah, they look more like conservatives on the first and more like liberals on the second. They're kind of down the middle. They're also, you know, care less about social sorts of uh, considerations. And, uh, you know, they tend to be uh, utilitarian, like, okay, if this works, um, then it, it's good. And that, it's that sort of detached, we, we, in, a, in a nice way, we sort of just talked to them about kind of being autistic or on the spectrum in a sense, right? So they can systematize, they aren't, their emotions aren't tied up in these moral, moral things and they're, they're, they try to uh, you know, just be dispassionate. And that's why they can look at the market, right? And say, oh yeah, we'll let the market decide the answers to things. You know, there's gonna be winners and losers. Well, it's, it's a lot easier to let the market pick life's winners, the less you suffer vicariously with the losers, right? So, I mean, the problem is that liberal, liberals might say that and then they feel, oh, well, uh, there's, but people are gonna be hurt. So we have to, we have to change this. We have to make it so people won't be hurt. So they can't, I was, but my description, I sort of try to do that just to give you a family version of, I think, you know, libertarianism is your kid goes to school, forgets their homework, right? What do you do? You know, sort of the libertarian mentality is, well, you let them 
take the blows. It'll be this learning experience. It'll be great. My wife and I would try to do that. We would wait about 15 minutes and we'd say, oh, they're going to be crying. They forgot their homework. Wouldn't we'd rush the homework to the to the school so they wouldn't get in trouble, right? That's the sort of liberal impulse is to help people. And it, you know, it's driven by this emotion. So libertarianism is at least an attempt, I think, to, and, and it tends to be attractive to people who sort of have sort of that, that less emotional character to them. So it's, it, you know, again, it's a hard thing to maintain and most libertarians don't maintain, you know, they don't want liberty about everything. You know, they tend to want liberty about the things that they like and not so much about other things. So. Yeah. So when it comes to political orientation, we've been talking a lot about morality and moral foundations more specifically. Is there any connection with personality traits? Yeah, empirically there there are, right? So the you know the most famous work is on the big five uh, personality traits that can personality psychologists seem to think of the five kind of you know, um, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, uh, agreeableness, and neuroticism, right? And they're clearly the most powerful sort of factor is that openness to experience is correlated with liberalism. So people that are sort of, un, I mean, in a, in a very commonsensical way, right? So if you're open, I want to try new things, I want to do these things. Yeah, sure, I'll try that. Let's do that. That's sort of the liberal sort of mentality, Right, uh, and, and so that, that 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 correlates well. Conservatism is sort of a, more of a neophobic, like okay, I'm going to sort of hold back and see. Uh, uh, you know, so you, you get that. And conscientiousness is related to conservativeness. Uh, you know, sort of being more, uh, you know, you know, espousing a, a connection with rules and things like that. I think it's in the way modern political psychology, I think, thinks that, that politics is personality that it's not that people are liberals and conservatives, it's that people look out, they have per certain personality traits, right? And they look out and pick the party who seems to fit those well. So if you were kind of worried about other things happening, you're kind of, you're kind of a cautious person, well, then the party that's telling you, you gotta watch out for immigrants and you gotta sort of, you know, have these strict laws about for, for harm doers and things, that, that's a more, attractive person. And so people who are, you know, there's other things like high needs for security uh, seems to be correlated with conservatism, you know, and, the, uh, and, and things like that. And so you, you kind of pick these parties. And then again, those parties can change the menu too. That's the other thing that's complicated. So they can emphasize different things. And so you'll, you, the people with the personalities will pick in different ways. But it's, I, again, it's very consistent with everything I think I've, I've said from the beginning is people, the, your initials, sort of view of humans as they have these elaborate cognitive structures like ideologies and principles and then they apply them to the world right and it just doesn't seem to work that i mean people are capable of that right they can do that but there's a whole bunch of backflow the other way the things you feel you know the things that people make you feel good then you figure oh those are good principles for me to have and you, know, you sort of adopt things the other way so people sort of self-proclaim um uh, things. I, you know, one, another really quick example of something I heard the other day is uh, that in the United States, there's been a big increase in how many people say that they're evangelical, mm -hmm. right? They claim that label, but there's a, there's a there's been a big drop in going to church. Yeah. So there is a sense, right? These are claims that you can make. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm an evangelical. It doesn't mean that that means it's they're, they're more aspirational. 
than anything else. Right? So people claim that they say, oh yeah, that's what, you know, the Trump people are evangelicals. That's what yeah, I'm an evangelical. Well, you may not espouse, you know, those, those particular principles, but it's a label you claim. And so that's what I think we always have to worry about with politics, right? Is they're, they're not, these are sort of self-nominated labels that people put on themselves and they don't always correspond with the kind of rich ideological structure that we kind of imagine. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, since we're talking about morality and personality, in this case applied to politics, but I mean, even outside of the realm of politics, do we know if they interrelate with one another? I mean, for example, when we talked about moral intuitions, could it be that moral intuitions are tied to Cognitive, uh, to cognitive mechanisms that are associated with personality traits, or is that not something that we see? No, you, I mean, the people have tried to, you know, how do people become liberals or conservatives or some other ideology? That's a really complicated no. question. It ends up being sort of, you give a pat answer, like, yeah, some combination of personality, genetic personality traits, early socialization, cultural influence, you know, kind of, you know, factors into these. But yeah, you could imagine something like, you know, people do differ in something like empathy. So whether they feel other people's pain or not, right? And and so if, and, and that could be a genetic, you know, I'm not a geneticist and I, you know, these things are really complicated. So, I, you know, so just for example, right, that it's, it's very plausible that, that has some basic, you know, somebody's born kind of emotional, uh, another person's you know, born sort of less so. And then the first person, and you see other people suffer and you feel their pain, right? And you go, oh, yeah. I know, really want to help them. And so what party tells you to help them and what party doesn't? And so you choose that way. Now, those things could be, that could be dialed up by your parents, you know, really emphasizing that, or it could be, you know, worked against, or if you're born in a particular, you know, if you uh, have that empathetic streak, but you're born into an evangelical, you know, uh, uh, super conservative social environment. Well, those things are going to get tamped down a little bit, and and so that so there's no clear path, right, from personality to, to politics. But again, I think it's it's much less sort of the story about us kind of constructing these really elaborate ideologies, right, is is only part true and probably not very true for lots of people. And for everybody, they're always organized by these sort of emotional experiences. That's how you weight things. How do you, you know, weight one person's uh, you know, misfortune against another? Well, you just, you have to, you feel it, right? And then and if you feel more of it, then it, it, it directs your cognitions in that way. And that's how that this sort of hot cognition thing sort of permeates at least my worldview. Yeah. So just one last question. Uh, do you, in your work, take uh, an evolutionary perspective into account and try to understand things like motivated reasoning, morality, politics, from an evolutionary standpoint, and perhaps try to come up with an evolutionary rationale for them? Um, the answer is yes, in a soft way, right? So, I mean, again, I think evolutionary thinking, right, it's, it can degenerate into these kind of just so stories. You can make up a lot of stories that fit yeah. the fact the problem with evolutionary causation, right? Is it's distal causation. It happened millions of years ago. You can't uh, 
identify its, its traces now. But, but from the beginning, right, we've always seen everything through this sort of evolutionary lens. The original, these this ideas that I, when I was, again, sort of studying the, the basic sort of thinking processes of, of motivated skepticism, that was really an idea of how, do, how is it that our, how is it that people can both believe what they want to believe, which we see people do, and believe what they have to believe at the same time? How do we walk the line between what we want the world to be like and what the world is like, right? And it can't be total, right? And so what I think, what, what I've always traced it to the fact that if something makes you, again, emotion theorists have talked a lot about this affect is information sort of idea that negative affect is a sign that your environments, we, you know, it's an it's a evolutionary mechanism to say something's wrong, mm-hmm. right? Put your hand on a stove, just to use pain as an example, right? And it's hot, you pull it away real fast. That's much better than sort of, yeah, geez, something's burning. I wonder what's going on. Let me think about this. Well, my hand's on a hot, oh yeah, you know. So thinking about it, so emotion's a quick system, right? When, when things are bad, we, we, it makes us feel bad and that's a sign for us to think, what do I do, what do I do? So you think real hard about things that are, so negative affect makes you think hard about things. Positive affect is a sign that everything's fine. In order that basically it's time you can your your mind can wander you can sort of think about other things and so yeah it makes sense that people as you know as as a sort of functional organism would orient toward negative information and think a lot about it and it's sort of a byproduct of that is when you think a lot about it very often you think your way out of it right but you can't do that completely if it's a snake you can't sit there and go oh yeah that's probably just a stick yeah definitely that's a stick i don't really want to run for this area because it's going to bite you. So you, you've got to be responsive to reality, but you, you, all these processes happen. So I think that, right, originally the whole idea was of my view of motivated reasoning was try to understand it. As it, When I started doing this research in, in the 80s, motivated reasoning was this taboo phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? It's just, how, how can you prove that? How can people believe something and not believe it? It seems very Freudian. It seems like stuff we don't want to think about. And I tried to make it more every day. Like, no, this is just the way a system operates. What we, the, you know, this this idea of thinking hard about things sometimes and not about others permeates all kinds of things. And this is one where if something makes you feel bad, you think about it. You're more likely to kind of view it skeptically. You know, if and if it's positive, you don't. Right? It just kind of happens as as part of our evolutionary makeup. Um, so I think that part, and the other part is I think, you know, I really see politics through this evolutionary lens, right? I mean, that groups, are our natural state of being for humans is these small, you know, originally it was these small groups and it's still group living and groups just clash. They fight all the time. You get people competing for something, they're going to fight, they've always fought, right? This is, and, 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 and our psychology is sort of built for that group living. We we're attracted to our groups. We're more charitable toward them, right? And that's why that's the argument we make that why you would. It just seems a little silly to think that maybe liberals are the only ones who could completely overcome this sort of natural groupiness in people, right? It just it, it, and, and, you know, and this tendency to kind of believe what you want to believe. It just doesn't seem plausible. It seems like such a fundamental. It's not a bug, right? Of, of human cognition, it's a feature, um, and that's what makes. Again, democracy is so hard because our natural tendency is to believe people who are like us, disbelieve people who aren't like us, apply a different rule. If you do it, if my group does it, it's okay, but if you do it, it's bad. And what democracy, liberal democracy tells you is, no, there's these 
abstract standards, universal standards. You have to treat it, you know, if your side cheats, you have to treat it just as badly as if the other side cheats. And that's just not the way people have thought for all these years. And so you people can do it, they're capable of it, but it, again, it's this sort of uphill evolutionary battle to get people to sort of, again, be charitable to people who aren't like them. And so, you know, it's admirable, right? I think humans should be, uh, uh, you know, applauded for doing that. And But you have to realize how that you're pushing a rock uphill and every once in a while that rock's going to roll back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, where people can find your work on the Internet? Uh, we have my uh, web page, uh, the Hot Cognition Lab web page. Uh, you know, it has all my articles, uh, you know, it's various, uh, you know, videos out of my, my talks that people can see. I don't, I don't do much Twitter. I have a lab Twitter, uh, that the, 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 the students help run. And, uh, uh, I guess that's it. Okay, great. I will be leaving links to that in the description box of the interview and Dr. Ditu, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Ricardo. It was fun. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Glinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Dugny, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenk, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akion Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardes France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Ruggieschi, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.